A few things as we get started today. Michael Judd, a friend of the show and recurring guest, recently launched a new book on Kickstarter, For the Love of Paw Paws, a mini-manual for growing, caring, and eating North America's largest native fruit. To celebrate this new project, we're partnering to give away a copy of his first book, Edible Landscaping with a Permaculture Twist, to a listener of the podcast. If you'd like to enter, email me at show at thepermaculturepodcast.com by March 24th with the title Paw Paw. Want to back his latest project? Search for Michael Judd on Kickstarter or by following the link in the show notes. As we enter spring, I'm running a small fundraiser until April 20th. If you love this show, whether you're new or been with me a long time, I'm asking you to donate a dollar for every episode you've listened to. It'll really help. As a thank you for donating to this campaign, the artist Lindsay Wilson has created a series of nature-inspired, one-of-a-kind mixed-media prints, which I'll be giving away to some donors. You can give online by going to paypal.me slash permaculturepodcast, or send something in the mail. The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. If you'd like to learn more about this fundraiser and see examples of the prints, go to thepermaculturepodcast.com slash spring. And you can see more of Lindsay's art at her website, curvedcanvas.com. While you're checking out that fundraiser, sign up for the Permaculture Podcast newsletter by entering your email address on the sidebar of the website. As a thank you, you'll receive an email with books I think every permaculture practitioner should read to better understand how to engage our landscape, the wild, and our communities. This is the Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann. Today, David Bilbrey returns to the host seat to speak with Julie Mettenberg of Tallgrass Network. Julie and the other families in the network practice holistic management to serve as an example to others that handling resources in this way is desirable and accessible. They help to train and demonstrate the manners and methods, while also providing consulting, monitoring, auditing, and incubating new entrepreneurs throughout the bioregion. Enjoy this conversation with Julie and David, and I'll join you again afterwards. Hi, this is David Bilbrey with Ecothinka.com, and I'm co-hosting the Permaculture Podcast today, and I'm speaking with Julie Mettenberg, who is the director of Tallgrass Network, which is the Kansas-Missouri USA hub of Savory Institute International. Their mission is to heal the world's grasslands. Julie is sixth generation to cooperate her family farm in eastern Kansas. Welcome, Julie. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's good to talk to you. We have some mutual friends that have introduced us, so it's good to meet someone else sort of here in the uh, Kansas, Missouri community. To start, let's talk a little bit about your origin story. Being raised on a, a farm that is six generations in your family is amazing, so you've got quite some tales to tell, I'm sure. So tell me a little bit about what that was like. You know, the tales, they go way back to bleeding Kansas, of course, and being some of the first settlers here who came from the East. My ancestors were Methodist missionaries, so that meant that they were circuit-riding preachers and doctors. And we have a memoir of one who detailed his first plowing of the prairie, which now feels a little heartbreaking, <laughs> but they plowed it to plant crops and have a, um, a financial income. So now, many years later, it feels a little like we're reversing that and repairing it. He and, and his family settled actually closer to Baldwin, but eventually his daughter moved down to the farm where we work today. So I grew up on one side of the road with my mother and her family, and then her brother, my uncle Fred, has the other side of the road, which is the original family homestead. 
So I growing up there, you know, we had a little tiny plot of prairie that could never be plowed, much like the Flint Hills because of the rock outcroppings on it. So I was a little bit blissfully ignorant that I was growing up on this last little piece of tall grass prairie, but it's what we knew. But of course, we were immersed in Kansas farmland and really prime farmland for the world's sake. And my grandfather and uncle operated quite a diverse cropping livestock dairy operation. And so I grew up in the midst of all that, but I did grow up a child of the farm crisis. So those of us who made it through the late 70s and early 80s really were encouraged to leave and not return for economic sake. So most of us did that, but some of us are trying to return. And that's kind of the journey, I would say, that a lot of farm families are on right now. When was that when your first family was in Kansas? It's a little murky with me, but it's 1851, 1852. They came to the Shawnee Indian Mission. So it was before Kansas was opened to settlement. When and how did you come into contact with Savory Institute? That is a good question. It's one of those things that feels like it kind of magically happened, but You know, in the course of farming, my parents really, um, my whole life, were kind of on a path that was away from traditional farming, and that's a lot about, they both worked off the farm, and so they had the ability to try new things and try different things. And so, over time, they really got away from any grain feeding. They understood that they were raising grass and farming sunlight, and When you're on that path, you try to read and learn wherever you can, and Alan Savory's name, of course, comes up everywhere you turn. So we knew of him. We had done pilgrimages around the country, like to Joel Saladin's farm in Virginia, and learned a lot of practices that had come from Alan. But then I was, eventually, I became executive director of the Kansas Rural Center, and in that position, became familiar with the opportunity to become a Savory Hub because the Savory Institute was starting and was starting this new global network of locations where people could learn and advance holistic management. So my family applied knowing that we have a family farm transition in our midst, and we thought it was a great fit for us. And so we applied, and we were chosen in the second year of new hubs. So that was 2014, I believe. So what did that mean to be a a hub? Well, a hub is a place that it's a really open-ended definition because the goal is for it to fit the local context wherever you are in the world. So one thing that we all have in common is we do have a demonstration site where we are always advancing holistic management and the various things that we can try. And so for us, that's our family farm in eastern Kansas. The other thing we do is, of course, we offer the training and curriculum of holistic management as Alan Savory built it and continues to improve it. And we continue to work with him to improve it. And then uh, we work globally to really try to have a, a learning, growing network of farmers, ranchers, and pastoralists who are working together to kind of advance this journey, regenerate our soils, regenerate our communities, and really learn and grow together. So 2014 is relatively recent. What have you noticed? What changes, improvements, um, challenges have you noticed since you've been implementing this framework? 
Well, we were doing a good job before, and then when we really were formally trained in holistic management, we were trained by Byron Shelton at Savory Institute and then also some by Alan over the years that we've been involved. We knew we were doing a good job before, but when we really implemented it, especially on the land, the productivity difference has been so extraordinary as to be shocking <laughs> and jaw-dropping on our, our little plot of Tallgrass Prairie. It, it's really almost changed the topography or the water cycle or you know, the various functionalities on our property very much for the better, you know, more wildlife, more diversity, more flowing streams. It really opens up a lot of potential for us for the future to see, wow, the potential of what this land could do for everyone and every the well-being of whole communities is quite amazing. The other thing about holistic management, though, is it's equally a decision-making and financial management framework. So another thing we've noticed is just the ability to make sound business decisions and really feel like we are not dependent on the farm economy so much, you know. And in some ways, the economic social component is a little more important even than the ecological piece. Well, that's something that I'm very interested in is how these whole systems kind of ideas apply to the economic and social. So I'd love to hear more about that. Tell me a little bit about your farm. How large is it? What are you uh, raising? The pieces that my family owns, so this would be my, my mother and father, who are both still living, thank goodness. So they own about a combined 600 acres. And then my uncle Fred owns, you know, at least that much more. And the pieces of that that are Tallgrass Prairie equal about 350 acres. They're on the old homesteads together. So on that property, we have one large commingled herd with some partner cattle in and investor cattle, and that one big herd with, with also some horses and donkeys and sheep, it rotates on the Tallgrass Prairie. Besides that, we have on the other farm properties dotted around the county, we have soybean and corn crops and, and wheat rotations and some of the more traditional farming. However, we farm with Marvin Bauman. And the Bauman family are longtime partners of ours, very good friends. So Marvin has introduced non-GMOs in his cropping on our properties. And in fact, our farm had the first corn crop going into the Bauman non-GMO feed mill that won the Slow Money National Competition a few years ago. So that's kind of the path of transition for our farms in general. And it's very exciting to watch. What are some of the key things you have changed since implementing holistic management? Well, on the land, you implement a holistic planned grazing, which includes crop planning. And in doing that, you know, there's, there's much, much, much in the world now about mob grazing and management intensive grazing and rotational grazing. And those are all kind of offshoots of this, but Planned grazing is truly where you, you really plan out your chart for the year and you know every day where those animals are moving and it's based purely on the recovery time of the plants that you're wanting to really encourage. So for us, it's the big blue stem and the, you know, the big tall grass species. But that map and that recovery time is really the critical piece and it changes every day. It changes based on rainfall or drought or, 
conditions seasonally. So it's a constantly changing landscape. So we use a lot of calculations and things that help us adjust every single day. And so when we talk about holistic management, one way we talk about it is it's a way to do human decision-making in the midst of extreme complexity, which is what the natural environment really challenges us with. So that planned grazing gives us a tool to be adaptive every single day. We make the plan, but then we adapt every day. And it's not a pure rotation or it's not really based on any notion of moving cows every day. So that's been one big difference is just implementing a plan in that way. Another is working together as a herd group. So, you know, if you look at traditional farming now, farmer A owns this piece and farmer B owns this piece and farmer C owns this piece. So in our deciding to go in with my uncle and some other partners and pool the herd into one herd and go over a much larger land base, it's really provided, number one, the recovery times that that grass needs, but also a real benefit in just group decision-making, pooled knowledge, pooled equipment, lowered costs, and then the production of the grass is, is a lot higher because of pooling that herd. It's helped a lot. So that was a really surprise finding was that the social benefits would be so high and that it would help accelerate that grass improvement more than we thought it would. And so I think those are two really big changes that are exciting for us. So with the pooled land and, and uh, animals, how much larger is the, I guess, how much larger is the land and how many animals are, do you have and how many are in the entire pool? Yeah, so I think the land base total now is about 350 acres. And as we grow... We're starting to add in some of the neighboring crop fields to that to graze residues and, and whatnot of like corn stalks. So that size grows a little bit each year. And then, you know, you have neighbors who, as they get interested, we hope will come in with us. And so we kind of expect that land base will grow over time. As far as the number of animals on it, I think my parents had a herd of about 20 or 30 cows with calves. And then my uncle probably had the same. And now we're up to about 100 to 120 cows with calves. And we're also keeping the yearlings in there. So there's another, you know, a, a batch of 20 grass-fed beef in there at any given time. How does having a larger herd change the dynamics and increase the productivity? Well, a lot of this goes to the heart of the theory behind holistic management and how grasslands respond but the basic idea is that, and, you know, science is seeking to test this, I think, but the basic idea is that the bigger herds, number one, we do put in smaller areas, so they are more like a herd in that they are more bunched and moving. So they can graze in a paddock that's maybe 10 acres, and then they move on. So the bigger the herd, the more of that forage they utilize while they're in that paddock. They're a little more competitive. They eat a more diverse diet out of that paddock, and then they move on. They also more evenly distribute their poop and their urine. <laughs> so, so what's returned to the soil is, is fairly well distributed, and then they move on. And then they might not be back for, you know, 30, 60, 90, 120 days. And that amount of recovery time... In our part of the world, it's different everywhere, but it seems to really 
it be encouraging very deep root systems and and also that stimulation of grazing in some way stimulates production of the plant that it, it would seem. But the result is you see the plants coming back more vigorous and rich and healthy and large, and, and they fill in more, so there's, and there's more diversity of species as the result. I'm not the scientist, so I don't know exactly how that's working, but it's magical to watch. And talk more about the social aspect that you mentioned a second ago. Yeah, so holistic management starts and ends socially, really, um, and that ecology piece is where a lot of people get focused. But we start by forming what we call a holistic context, and so you first want to start by understanding what's the whole that you're even managing. So whether it's your family farm or, in our case, we have a little subgroup that manages this herd, you start by getting the decision makers in a room, and we create this holistic context, which is really a guiding document. And it's not really a goal document or a strategy document. It's like a values document. And it also outlines, you know, to have this quality of life that we all want in the future, this resource base is going to need to look like this. And that includes our human relationships as well as the land. So with that guiding document, then we set about making plans for the year. So you make your grazing plan or crop plan. You also make a detailed financial plan at the very start. And so it's also called a holistic financial plan. It's a little bit different than traditional planning, but it it's not something that people would find terribly different. But it's, um, it's different enough that it leads you through decision-making to really continually focus on your most high-impact inputs and removing all the inputs that you can while just focusing on the ones that will get you the farthest toward that quality of life and future resource base that you want. So to do that, you have a room full of people who have to work together and work together on fairly high-level decision-making as well as day-to-day decision-making. But the framework is a powerful tool for doing that. And it also allows each conversation to be very productive rather than repetitive, ideally, and in most cases we have found. And so for us, the practical outcome is that we've been able to engage more people, grow the team that's working together. My mother and my uncle now are working together on a daily basis, which is really exciting and wonderful for our family. So in general, there's just been a very large healing and bonding effect just by practicing this together. And I think that the idea of combining resources is encouraged in and of itself is a way that it brings a community together rather than keeping farming in a competitive paradigm. It's a very different paradigm than (laughs) their conventional model. Instead of uh, survival of the fittest, it's how does the whole community thrive? How do we help each other thrive? How do we contribute our gifts and skills to this group of people instead of just your family to do something that you all want to accomplish together and you can accomplish more by that cooperation? So that's, yeah, that's great. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I just returned from Kenya. We had our global hub meeting in Kenya out the Maasai Mara, which is just gorgeous. And, you know, it's where all the the charismatic species of wildlife, you know, just driving down the road, you see lions and giraffes and elephants and everything you could want. But as a community of pastoralists, but you know, it's a really large region of Kenya, but they really face very, very severe environmental degradation because of their management practices and the 
a lot of that is around how wildlife is managed. It's not just livestock. So it was interesting to be immersed there with Alan Savory, actually, and see a lot of the back and forth and problem solving using this paradigm where you're bringing many communities and people and interests together to try to do better by the whole ecology and the whole economic system. So it's really powerful for many, many different settings. So how many people are in your community or pool there with your farm and the, the surrounding farms? We have in our this little immediate herd pool, I think we have five animal owners currently and landowners and, and participants. And the community itself is a town of about 800. And then not part of the herd, but in our farming, our other farming operations. So I mentioned the Bauman family. So that's Marvin and his sister Rosanna, who um, operates the poultry processing and Bauman's Butcher Block meat processing. Every member of the Bauman family is part of that. It was part of our farm community. So that's a list of three to six people. And um, other than that, you know, we have, you know, a dozen close neighbors and friends. And then, you know, your various services that you hire, hay people and movers. And, and in the course of doing business, you might have, I can't remember how many contacts we counted up last year that we were doing business with, but maybe 30 and then outside of that, involved with these, hub, the hub is bringing in people. So we'll have interns from, day, from time to time. We have other neighbors a little farther down the road who come in and, and are starting to partner and be interested and learn. And my dad and, and his friend Scott, his neighbor friend, are threatening to have a dung beetle school next summer. <laughs> so I'll put that out. <laughs> Um, but it's just, it's a little bit magnetic and, and fun, but on any given day, it's a little hard to pinpoint, to be honest. What is a dung beetle school? Well, um, you would learn everything that you could ever want to know about dung beetles. <laughs> <laughs> and my sister, who's a marketer, has named it From Poop to Profits. For a farmer, the dung beetle really is one of the most important pieces of livestock on the property, if, if they understand that. And you know, managing holistically, we've seen a, a, a real resurgence of dung beetles on our property. And, and they're important because they, are, they help the mineral cycling. They help remove other parasites and pests. And, and they're just amazing little creatures. Or, or is that something that's native to Kansas? Well, they're, they're found all over the world. Anywhere um, there's poop? And, yep, anywhere <laughs> there's poop. And just so many different varieties, depending on the types of poop. And yeah, they're happy little fellas. Is there certain things you do to create an environment to draw them, or do you introduce the beetles? Uh, you can do both, and we have not introduced any. So ours have come back by virtue of just changing practices. And the one that we know about, um, first of all, I think the bunched and moving might play play a factor because you know all that manure in one place makes it more efficient for the dung beetle. But we also don't apply fly and parasite controls the way we used to. If we do it now, it's far more targeted and, and concentrated. So rather than just apply to the whole herd, we don't apply those things. And the thing about a pesticide like that or an insecticide is it kills beneficials as well as the ones you don't want. But those beneficials are what help you control the ones you don't want. So in rebalancing that, we are finding a lot more dung beetles. And rebalancing that, 
I, I would imagine creates an environment where you have less need for the pesticides, right? Yeah, that's the hope. And we certainly think we're seeing that with our horses, for example. We haven't had parasites in, in a very long time. And part of that, too, is keeping them bunched and moving. The horses are in with the cattle, as are the sheep, usually, hopefully. So the multi-species and bunched and moving together, all of it together seems to have a, a great beneficial effect on the health of the whole. We do struggle with outbreaks and things that we're still struggling with because we haven't fully gotten our holistic system up and, and working, but we can see a lot of ways we're breaking through and, and getting there. Well, and you're what, three years into it now, 5, 10, 15, 20 years, and that's a lot more mature ecosystems. Yeah, correct. There's a transition period, I would imagine. And I would say that's the hope, but that is also the anecdotal story from people worldwide going this path. So it's going to vary based on location, but what is a typical transition period where you get to kind of a more f fully functioning ecosystem? You know, I don't really know if you can put a number on that. The thing that we were told uh, repeatedly when we first started, we went to Zimbabwe for training at Allen's Ranch there. And there was a woman from Australia whose husband had been a real innovator in holistic management 30 years ago. And she just kept saying, just give it two years. You won't believe the difference in two years. And, and that's been true for sure. As far as getting over that hump where it really feels like the ecosystem is really functioning, I imagine that's a long journey that just continually happens. I don't know. It's changed a lot in two years, though. Well, and I would imagine as as time moves on and the the size of land involved may continue to grow with, as more neighbors may get involved, there may be some dynamics there that have added benefits that you may or may not uh, foresee ahead of time. Yeah, exactly. I guess I can say some, not old timers, but people who've been at it longer, you know, maybe there's a magic number around 10 years to answer your former question. Sure. And that's that's similar to some other types of farms that I've, farmers I've spoken with. Can you tell me a little bit more about the decision-making process, how you introduce that sort of, here's how we're going to communicate and make decisions together, sort of how you introduced it to your group there, and then maybe how it that would apply in these more complex or controversial settings in places in the world that are much less stable <laughs> governmentally than, than us. How's that for a complex question? No, that's a really, really big and good question. So first of all, one thing I would say it has been both surprising, but also maybe reaffirming, but also sad to see that these problems seem the same everywhere. And there's so much that is like a small communal African village that feels just like my family or my community here in eastern Kansas. It's like these are human issues that are universal, right, about how we relate and how we make decisions. And I think that Alan Savory, you know, he's, he can be very controversial and people lose sight of some of the bigger reasons he probably should be controversial. And one of them is perhaps that people need to raise their level of thinking and decision-making. And ultimately, that's the framework that we're trying to advance is we all need to be making better decisions and we need to be making them together, not in a 
communist way, but in a, a higher level desire to see this world survive sort of a way. So from our local standpoint for us, and I think this is worldwide, but the first thing is to get them in the room and they have to want to be there. And so my daily challenge operating the Tallgrass Network is really how to share the information in a way that just opens doors so if people want to be there, they can walk through it. But if someone isn't ready or doesn't want to be in the room, it's really not something that they're going to try to do with you. So when it came to our herd and our family, the folks in the room really wanted to be there. They had read some of Alan's work. They understood the thinking. They were behind the project. And so when that's the case and you get in the room and you say the first thing we have to make is this holistic context, and so you go through that process and then you test a couple of decisions with the testing questions we use, very quickly it proves itself in, in one day. <laughs> It'll easily prove itself. With those big communal settings like the Maasai Mara or in Zimbabwe, we visited a community. There were two communities on a river that got together to try to solve the fact that their river was not flowing anymore. In those cases, it's about finding the leader, the leaders, the thought leaders, the folks of influence that other people want to hear from in those communities and working with them. And if you can find that leader who wants to be in the room and bring other people in, then the process gets kicked off. And what Alan recommended in the Maasai Mara was to really grow that into a much larger group than the hub there had already convened. But the hub there, um, Lippa Wood is, I guess, the proprietress there. She told me one evening that we were on a hill overlooking this valley, and she said they started the process by bringing these chiefs or communal leaders up to this hill and overlooking this big valley and saying, what do you want this to look like for your children? And that started the process for them. That's powerful. Yeah. You know, if we could get a group of people together anywhere in the world and say, what do you want this to look like for your children and get them to actually consider that, that would change things dramatically. Yeah. And Alan's point of doing this for almost five decades now with, with all types of groups of people around the world, agencies and governments and, and ranchers, and it's usually groups like that at odds with each other that come into the room together. And he just will tell you that very seldom do they leave the room not agreeing that what they want out of life is the same thing. When we really look at our values and look at the highest level of, or the deepest level of our beings, we all want the same things. And so the holistic context document is intended to put that on paper for the people who are involved. And it's kind of then the North Star that we all use. Is that document something that you could share? Each operation has its own. Does that start with the testing questions? I mean, just the framework of how you go about creating it. Like, how do you have a, you have a framework for how you get that document? So you're saying each way, the document's actually a unique one for what you decide on together as a group. Correct. It's a working document for any group, and it's revised and revisited every year. So how do you start to create that document? You have a record, someone in the room is going to type for you. And I've done this with couples as well. You know, a farm couple who's trying to decide whether to do or, or any couple really, somebody needs to write it down. You do want it written down. And I do have some of ours that I share in classes. I don't know that I would put it out on a public platform, but we do share them. 
So you write down, you start by, as I said, defining the whole, you know, what is it we have under our whole that we're going to manage? You look at your finances and land and assets and people and relationships and skills, and you just kind of try to get your arms around it. You make sure that you are actually the decision maker and that anybody who is a decision maker is helping make this document. And then you write down what you want in the quality of life and what you want or what the future resource base needs to be. And you try to keep it to a page. And then, you know, just having done that, you can put it in a drawer and never look at it again, but just having done it informs your thinking. But if you keep it out and you continue to look at it as you make decisions, then it will help you make better decisions. And then we have this testing kind of rubric that we will put big decisions through or even little ones. There are people who carry laminated copies in their pocket of the testing framework where you run through a series of questions pretty quickly against your context to just say, is this decision right now the best one that I could make? So an example of a testing question is just, am I going to get the biggest bang for the buck from this action if I take it? And is this action actually solving a problem? And if so, is it, is it solving the root cause of the problem? Just a few simple questions, and it's amazing how it can change a decision for a group in just an hour. And will doing this cause any negative consequences? Is that part of it as well? Yeah, in more concrete terms. Uh, and it's usually more positive, like, is this growing the future resource base we need or is it not? Is this solving the a social problem or is it not? Is it going to create one? I guess when I was asking to share the document, I was considered thinking of the questions that you have to, to create the document more than your, your own personal document. Those personal documents are, are great, though, as examples to see. And I think there's some in Alan's book and some in the ebooks that we have, and that's all on Global's website where you can find all that. Okay, we can put some links to that in the show notes. It's just, it'd be interesting to see that. Okay, so you just went to Kenya. You want to talk a little bit more about that? The Hub Network tries to meet somewhere in the world once a year. So this year, some of us were able to go to Kenya. So I think there were 10 different hubs represented from around the world. And it's just kind of our four-day retreat together to do business as a global network, really a global mission, <laughs> trying to figure out how to where to go next and, and how to do what we're doing and do it better and have fellowship, you know, and, and it's so rewarding to be there and learn about their challenges and so much that's the same. There's a huge information exchange, of course, you know, here's what we do, here's what we do, here's what we would try in your situation. And then, of course, Alan's there, and basically it's like having a master class with Alan Savory. It's a good time. So tell me a little bit more about the Tallgrass Network. The Tallgrass Network, it is technically a small business that I own and operate. And the mission of it, serving as a hub, but just in general, is to work with farmers and ranchers and their families who are interested in figuring out how they're going to be farming for the next 100 years which has a lot to do with regenerating and repairing how farms were managed in the past 100 years. We also work with students of all ages who want to get involved in farming in some way, so from school groups to interns and camp-type situations. We also work with everyday citizens who want to get engaged in some way. There are a few different programs 
through the Savory Institute that we work pretty closely with so we can help people find products they want to buy or, you know, in some way engage in learning more about this. Those are our main projects, and of course, we operate the demonstration farm to continue to learn. My sister operates a meat company in St. Louis called Farmer Girl Meats, and so that's our marketing arm, if you will, for our farm products. Well, yeah, one of the things that was interesting in talking with Jacqueline Smith of Central Grazing, who introduced us, was she's created this marketing and branding company, basically removing the middleman of... I guess distributors or whatever, and by doing so enables her to pay the farmers who are raising the, the sheep in her setting a lot better wage. So I was going to ask you about how you guys handle distribution, so I guess there's the answer. <laughs> you guys have your own brand distribution company as well. Yeah, and you know, that issue of the profitability of the whole chain has been something we've deeply, deeply <laughs> been engaged with this past year. And Jackie and I meet about this a lot. Rebuilding this local regional supply chain that's not based on an industrial model or scale has its challenges, and one is to make sure that it does make money for everyone in the chain. And it seems intuitive that the smaller business chain would be more profitable, but in fact, there's a reason that agriculture got big, and it's so it could gain those economies of scale. So in going back to a decentralized production, decentralized processing, aggregation, distri- distribution, retaining that profit for everyone in that chain or, or keeping those costs under control is, is a bigger challenge than people may realize. So Farmer Girl Meats has worked on this model a couple of different ways, but currently it's a, a combo of purchasing the animal and then profit sharing back, much like what Jackie's doing. And how many farms are you guys purchasing animals from? I'm not sure the current tally, but if you, she, my farmer girl meets, sells all species, and they're based in St. Louis with home delivery, but they ship nationwide. I would say across all those species, they work with seven or eight farmers in Kansas and Missouri. So it's not a uh, a retail distribution like Jackie's doing with like natural grocers and that kind of thing. Actually, farmer girl meets is the retailer, so they're not wholesaling into stores um, yet. It's going to the end consumer. So you can go on Farmer Girl Meats and set up a subscription uh, service and get a box every so often or whatever you want as a consumer, and it comes straight to you. Let's talk a little bit more about what it was like for you to transition from what you were doing from introduction of these ideas to implementation. What was that process like for you? Oh, wow. It must have been gradual, um, like a frog in a pot of water that starts to boil, because it seems like it was gradual. So, you know, I probably got re-involved with our farm 10 years ago. I think that was about the time that my sisters and I were you know, watching the Food Network, and Mario Batali was really talking about heritage pork. And, you know, we went to our parents and said, you are raising what the chefs of this world want. So we got re-engaged in helping get their product and, and also Mettenberg Farm. I guess it's mettenbergfarm.com. That's my parents' website. Also direct sales meet into the Kansas City area. So we set that up. We started offering the products you know, to our email list or whatever, which is how a lot of farmers get started in direct marketing. But in so doing, you know, that brought us down to the farm and working more. 
And then, of course, when I we applied for the hub and got the hub, I'm I'm the one sibling who's here on the ground every day or most often actually working on the farm. So, you know, building fence and moving cattle and animal husbandry. And my parents are really still involved in that and engaged in a way that, and my uncle as well, that I'm just still learning from them. What is challenging, and this is social and they would admit it as well, is when you're the one who's coming back and you're bringing these new ideas and as progressive as my family is about wanting the new ideas, there's still a friction on the day-to-day operations of, well, are we going to try that or are we not? And so I guess other than a a nice, happy, bucolic daily romp in the grass on the ATV where you can just go out and enjoy the view. There's also daily social friction, despite the holistic context of just, you know, one generation's ideas versus another and profitability really needing to be there and making sure everyone's goals are incorporated and communicating. And we have our, our challenges like everybody else, but it has been a great learning curve. The thing that I'm learning that is really valuable is the experience with large livestock. And when I look at the landscape for farmers and ranchers here, getting reacquainted with the management of large herds of large livestock is something that I think is going to become more and more important for our region. And so that's one thing I'm looking at, trying to figure out how to offer more options to get hands-on experience and, you know, maybe pair up investors with farmers to get more animals out on the land. Because if you're regenerating, you really need that poop cycle and the hoof action and the grazing. It's really hard to regenerate without it. The most progressive crop farmers do a great job with cover crops and such, but at some point getting those animals back out on the land seems really important. So for me to relearn that, and then um, I'm looking forward to teaching it or or regrowing it as a capacity here in our region. Is this a a method that could be used as a way, if you had bought a farm that's got pretty deteriorated soil and you ultimately wanted to do orchards and more of a you know full like permaculture design could you do this for a period of time to restore the soil and then start planting the trees and you know doing the full permaculture plan have you heard of that kind of an application would that work it would absolutely work and what is heartbreaking is to see people worldwide go out with big plans to plant a lot of trees in dead soil or without having restarted the ecology that would have originally been present in a place. And by originally, you know, I have an environmentalist friend at the University of Kansas who said, you know, that originally to what time period? I mean, the world's always been in flux. But for each ecosystem, there is a climax community that does make sense in the world that we know. But to just go plant trees in an ecosystem without having reconnected with it and restarted the soil biology, et cetera, it seems like a really long road to hoe. Whereas, yes, what the holistic process would show you would not be, oh, we're going to rush out and put animals here or there. It helps you walk through those decision-making processes with an understanding of the ecology and the economy. So those two things really do have to work together. And then socially making sure you can actually implement it. So 
you know, we go in with huge plans and ideas, but it's really easy to burn out. The holistic process just helps you think through the ordering. And my mom would say, like, after all those years of searching and, and learning the hard way, the holistic framework finally gave her a place to plug in all these ideas. So those dots connected and it made sense and it was a plan. And so absolutely, and it works well with permaculture or many, any other you know, practice that you hear out there. You can put it in this framework, test it, plan it, incorporate it to your heart's content. And it would be very exciting to see people doing that, actually. That question about permaculture and, and restoring the soil with you know, what you're doing with herds, you have this land where you're doing this already. And if people in surrounding land wanted to convert their property into organic farm or a permaculture site, I could just see a way where you could collaborate for a period of a couple of years, them allowing you to access the land for the, you know, to feed the cattle on or and whatever animals to restore their soil and then build that permaculture project or whatever they're doing. And some of the resources from that may come back to your farm and your project as well, kind of a building that community and building a diversity of what's being created there as far as um, crops and products and, and resources, but also knowledge and, and diversity of sort of people. Yeah, exactly. That would be fantastic. We have some really good examples around the regenerative ag community in general of especially young people starting up new businesses that are, you know, rent a flock. So, Brittany Cole Bush is a good friend, and we had our holistic training together, but she's a shepherdess in California, and she's really a leader in this and um, loves to help people do this, where she started her farming career. She was urban, but she started her farming career by working with flocks with sheep and goats and writing grants for grazing them in the big public parks in California for fire mitigation, but certainly here... You could do the same for brush mitigation and and the beginning of a restoration of a property and soil, for sure. And sheep and goats are are nice because they're a lower point of entry and a faster turnaround than cattle. That said, there are some smaller body breeds of cattle. So we have a client who has Dexters and, you know, there are some nice smaller cattle that can work on smaller properties in the same way. Maybe a good starting point for working with larger livestock. I'm just pointing it out as a a good business venture, maybe for someone wanting to get started in farming who doesn't have land. And I guess they should contact us if they want to talk more. When we work with new farmers, we work a lot with holistic financial planning to help come up with a business plan for something like that so that you map it out before you actually try to do it. But I think it'd be a phenomenal business, and I totally agree with you that it's a great fit to get started with a permaculture project. I've known a few people that have, have purchased properties in the last several years and wouldn't have access to having a herd on their land. So that rent-to-herd idea is great because it'd be a lot quicker way to restore the soil than without animals, obviously. But buying and raising and managing animals may not be an expertise they have or even want to have. So just by sort of granting that access or renting that access, is uh, that's really interesting. Well, it is, and it gets back to your question earlier about the opening up of farming to more of this community mindset again. And I think this was, my mom tells stories back in the day that it's not like back before, get bigger, get out. (laughs) It was more communal and shared. 
of course, people, you know, help each other put up hay and crops. But this idea of holistic management opening up opportunity, what we are certainly finding around the world is that people specialize. And so a farmer right now, a farmer mindset is kind of sometimes that you have to be all things to all people, or you have to be a jack of all trades, or, you know, you have to be the one who keeps the whole thing going. But if you know you can have a good partner that brings in cattle or sheep or, you know, fulfills different parts of your needs and you work together, it builds a more resilient system overall. Well, I, I love that because, you know, the last several years I've been thinking a lot about, I mean, there's big, a lot of buzz about relocalization, but I've been thinking about, okay, how could you create a, you know, local food hubs where all of the food that you need is actually created, grown locally, and you can't raise or grow everything you would want to eat personally necessarily. A few people have some pretty diverse permaculture farms where they may be closer than some, but for most of us, we're going to do a couple of things well. So if you have these communities where you've got several ranchers, you got cows, you got goats, you got sheep, you've got the people that have the orchards and the nut trees, vegetables, perennial vegetables, land institute, when they start developing more of the perennial grains, if you have sort of an idea of what elements you need in a given, maybe a given area. I don't know what the size would be, you know, a certain land size within a 40 mile radius or whatever. If you have this different grouping of people, people could start to create communities based on the knowledge of the different elements they're going to want to have. And someone may be able to pay you with nut or fruit crops for your, you know, renting them your herds to, to graze on their land. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's really a food shed approach, right? Where we think together about our food shed. And then that opens the door to think more about the chemicals we apply on our food shed and the how the water cycle is working together. And it's rewarding to work together and not be isolationist, for sure. Yeah, so you got me thinking in all kinds of things. I, there's different ideas that come across from time to time that I meet somebody who's been doing something in a specific way. And it's like, okay, so that's how that piece could fit with this piece. And so for people that are at a point where they'd like to start to practice what you've been doing, where would they get started? Well, I'm going to totally plug the Tallgrass Network as the entry point, <laughs> just because it's the one I know, and it's super easy to get to. So at tallgrassnetwork.com, we always keep our list of upcoming events, and we try to offer a broad variety in cost and topic and interest area. And we're always offering official holistic management training. Well, we always try to have some of that. So at tallgrassnetwork.com, and the most important thing would be to sign up on the contact list. And we don't send emails out very often, but if something new is happening, we send out an email and so you would know. And of course, we're on Facebook and a little bit on Twitter and Instagram. You can also go to savory.global and go to the shop and order Alan's book or some of the ebooks, which are little pieces of the paradigm. So you can just learn how to make a holistic context or how to do decision making. All of those points are good. And I just encourage people to start where they are and with what feels comfortable. And if it's going whole hog and buying the whole series of classes and doing it, I have people who do that. But there's also just tiptoeing in, coming to a free session read the book. You can certainly do self-learning, but eventually it's really nice to hook into a whole network and that's what we're trying to grow here. And what is the book to start with? 
It is called Holistic Management by Alan Savory, the newest edition, third edition, A Common Sense Revolution to Restore Our Environment. Very good. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk. It's been interesting, fascinating, and exciting. In closing today, do you have any final thoughts you'd like to share? Of course, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about this. I also appreciate the opportunity to do it on the Permaculture podcast. I think a lot of us can get wrapped up in our own particular paradigm or way, and it's been rewarding to have these conversations with permaculture, and every regenerative ag path has a lot to contribute, and so there's far more to be gained by all of us throwing in and sharing everything we know and trying everything we can and finding those paths that work best for us, both for ourselves and together. I think the future of farming and food and water, which is critical, can be extremely hopeful when you do tap into one of these networks. And so I would highly encourage anyone to seek it out. And even if you're just a consumer or a food eater, get involved and you'd be surprised how many ways that you can have influence and get involved and and get your hands in the dirt even. (laughs) So I guess that's my parting thought is it's worth it. It's a lot of fun. Don't be intimidated and the more of us who do get involved, the more of us that'll change the system. Well, have a great day, and we will talk again soon. I'll have to come out and see your farm. Yeah, absolutely. And through the Tallgrass Network website, we have days where people can come out or contact me directly if, if anybody would like a tour. And that was Julie Mettenberg. Find out more about her work with Tallgrass Network at tallgrassnetwork.com. This conversation with Julie and David answers some questions about holistic management that I didn't know to ask before. As the focus of how I've encountered these ideas pushed the ecological benefits while leaving the social side out of the discussion. The human element of the equation is the hardest to overcome. As Julie shared, we need to raise our level of thinking and decision-making to ensure the choices we make get us toward our goals, and then work on making those decisions with others who our choices impact and we can synergize with. I like hearing that holistic management allows for that, which reminds me of my interview with Seth Wilner way back in 2012 about holistic management and whole farm planning. At the time, I was interested in the singular farm and what it means holistically to be a farmer. What we heard today takes that a step further to include the family and farm within a community. By reaching out to friends and neighbors engaged in farming and other agricultural practices, from field to market, what may start as a herd group becomes an experience in shared resources that builds community and reduces costs. In this integrated model of farming, as presented by Julie, through holistic management, our shared pastures and equipment increase our resiliency and interdependence. We care for ourselves, our farm, and our community. What do you think of this conversation with Julie? Can you see the potential for whole farm planning and holistic management in your permaculture design? Let me know your thoughts on this or anything else by leaving a comment for this episode, or by getting in touch. Call 717-827-6266, email show at thepermaculturepodcast.com, or write The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. From here, the next interview is with Philip Ackerman Leist, as we discuss how the town of Maltz, in Italy, took public action to push back against pesticide contamination in the community. Until the next time, plan for an abundant future while taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.